And our New Testament reading is out of Mark chapter 1. That's Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. But, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we gather again, we come to be with you, Lord. Lord, as we might come with so many different reasons, Lord, the reason we are here and you call us here is to be with you, to hear your voice, to be changed in the hearing and the believing of it. Lord Jesus, would you give us your word this morning? Would you fill us? Would you fill our enjoyment of you in and through by the Holy Spirit? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the past month, uh, my youngest son, Calvin, he's two and a half, he has defeated at least, at least 1,000 imaginary enemies in our home. Calvin dons his stocking cap, serving as his ninja mask, at times covering his entire face, which is very dangerous, I know. But he goes on a mission to rid our home of every invisible evil ninja there is. In its, on its premises. His constant haya, hayas, ring through the house, proclaiming that no enemy will go undefeated in our home. What kind of hero is Calvin? He's a cute one. And we don't want him to be any other type of hero just yet at this point. You see, the story of every hero includes enemies to be defeated, journeys to be made, a mission the hero is set to accomplish, and crowds, well-meaning crowds that have expectations, cheering the hero on, but often for their own ends. And Mark presents Jesus in just such a way, as a hero, as a king at that. We begin to see that the crowds have their expectations for him today. And they have their own desires of who Jesus is or should be. This shouldn't surprise us, right? The world does this every single day. The world wants Jesus to be a social activist, right? To be a pacifist, to be their political party's champion, right? Put him on the poster for our team. A hippie, a universalist, a revolutionary, or just a great guy that you should live like, right? What would Jesus do? 
But Christians, Christians do this too. We come to Jesus expecting that he will keep us from affliction, expecting that he'll keep our kids in the faith if we just do it all right, right? We expect him to give us peace, to not take away the things we love or give us flat tires on the way to church. We, like the world, come to Jesus for a whole host of reasons. But are they the reasons that Jesus wants us to come? Are they the mission for which Jesus came to earth for? What kind of hero, king, is Jesus? And what is his mission? Let's retell this passage and see if we can hear it, okay? See, last week's passage ended with a synagogue full of people who were astonished by Jesus' teaching and with the exorcism of a demon. And it's the same day because verse 29 shows us that Jesus is now leaving that synagogue with his few followers. And they go to, they go to Simon and Andrew's house, that's Peter's house, uh, in order to eat and rest, likely on the Sabbath. Now, upon entering, we learn that not only is Peter married, but he also has his mother-in-law in the home, and she is in bed with a fever. Now, fevers, as we know, can be very serious, right? They can even be fatal uh, without modern medicine or other helps. But Jesus, what does he do? He calmly, plainly takes her hand, lifts her up, and her fever's gone. Right? There's none of that hangover, if you will, of the residual illness or fatigue of the sickness. She begins to serve immediately. See, that same morning, with a word, Jesus left crowds speechless. And here, with a but one simple touch, Jesus restores this woman to her health. And not only that, but to her dignity. To host in a Middle Eastern culture is a significant honor. This was giving her dignity to be hospitable to guests in her home. Now the daytime likely passes in rest because we don't get any details uh, on the in-between, but what happens at sundown? Well, the Sabbath ends at sundown, but with that come the crowds clamoring to Peter's door. You see, it had become a tradition that you could not have any semblance of work, even mercy-oriented work, like carrying sick or demon-possessed people on the Sabbath. And because the Sabbath ran right from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday, they could not come to Jesus. And suddenly, they come, right, carrying the sick and the demon-possessed. And in a time with no modern medicine, if your child was sick, if your mother was paralyzed, if your friend was demon-possessed, if you had a spouse near death, wouldn't you come urgently as well? And if you came that night, if you saw that scene, what would you see? You would see an entire city, an entire city at the door of one man. And it was likely well into the night before the crowds would disperse. Jesus, having healed many, having exercised many demons and silencing them as well. And you can't wait to return to come back tomorrow to see what will happen next. Well, verse 35 starts a new day. Before the Sunday dawn breaks, before anyone has gotten up for work, Jesus silently leaves. He finds a quiet place outside the city in the wilderness, it says, and he prays. He prays. See, of all the unbelievable things that Jesus has done with a word or with a touch, 
it's here that we must slow down and grasp something profound. What does this hero do when he has his own time? He goes away to pray. The hero, the king, sneaks away to have fellowship, friendship, communion with the Father through the Holy Spirit in prayer. Now, as Donna broke, the city awoke, and likely they come back to Jesus' door to find what? No Jesus. Where has their miracle worker gone? Where has their exorcist gone? So somewhat frantically, they begin to search. Peter, Andrew, James, and John take off searching, and when they find Jesus, they say, everyone is looking for you. In other words, what are you doing here? Mark records Jesus' simple response. Let's go to the next towns that I can preach there also, that I can preach there also, for that is why I came out. Verse 39 says that's just what they did, going through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What kind of hero, king is Jesus? What is his mission? Did you hear it? Verse 38 to preach. Jesus' mission is to preach. If you wonder what it is he's preaching, Mark 1, 14 through 15 told us. It said that Jesus came proclaiming, preaching. It's the same Greek word, keruso. He came proclaiming, preaching the gospel of God. The gospel news that the kingdom has come with the King Jesus. And what does everyone need to do? Repent and believe in this King. That's what Jesus is preaching. That's what he's come to do. Our text teaches us that Jesus is wholly committed to preaching the gospel. This is our main idea. You'll see it in your bulletin. Jesus is wholly committed to preaching the gospel. So we are to come to commune, to have friendship with God. Jesus' commitment to the gospel, we'll see this in our main main points. Jesus' commitment to the gospel does not forego compassion. In In fact, it is fueled by his own communion with God. And finally, it has the aim of bringing you into communion with God. Let's start in our first point. We we see again, Jesus is committed to preaching the gospel, but he will not forego compassion to those who come to him. We're looking largely at verses 29 through 34 here. But verse 29 starts with Jesus having left that dramatic scene at the synagogue. And it was dramatic, right? It was dramatic from last week. And here is Jesus, Jesus with no flair, with no audience, showing compassion to an aging mother in a simple Jewish home. Verse 29 through 31 are showing us that Jesus doesn't just have authority over evil spirits, over demons, but also over your body, right? He can heal sicknesses. And verses 32 through 34 show us that this is why. This is why the crowds are coming to him. They think, in this man, we have found a miracle worker, a healer, an exorcist, right? He doesn't even need magic spells or magical incantations. He says a word, and he touches people, and they are made well. This is why the crowds are clamoring to Jesus. They are helpless, and here is help. It makes sense. But do you ever notice about Jesus' ministry that he doesn't go looking for patients? Jesus doesn't go to the town square and say, bring me all your sick. Bring me all your oppressed. No, back in verse 23, 
He went into the synagogue to teach. Verse 38, he says, I am here to preach. Amidst Jesus' laser focus on what his mission is, he will not forgo compassion. Look at verses 33 and 34. What does Jesus spend an entire evening doing? It's showing compassion. It's being merciful on the crowds who have come. You may wonder, if you look closely at verse 34, if he's preaching about the gospel of the kingdom and the, uh, the coming of the king, then why would he silence those demons' confession, right? That supernatural confession being made. Well, this is a theme that we will come back to over and over again in the book of Mark, but there's at least a few reasons here. One, this is the early church father's favorite reason. They argue that Jesus will not permit the preaching, the keruso, the good news, being spoken by an agent of the devil. He will not allow Satan to be the one who proclaims, demons to proclaim that he has come. Two, or second, it's not yet time for the Jewish leaders to know that Jesus is here in the way he is. It's not time for the Roman officials to hear there's a rebel king. In Capernaum, there was actually a detachment of Roman troops and a Roman official. It was that big of a town. So it's not yet time for Jesus to be proclaimed far and wide. And third, it's not yet time because most practically, Jesus hasn't gone and proclaimed it far and wide. And the crowds, you'll notice this throughout Mark, the crowds most often get in the way. The crowds get in the way of Jesus preaching the gospel Imagine with me, if you would, a mother who has just made a fresh batch of cookies. The smell of those cookies, right, going throughout the entire house. All the children say yes and amen. Cookies, right? And along comes a child, and they look at the cookies, and they look at mom, and they look at the cookies. Say, mom, I love you so much. Have I told you today, mom, how precious you are to me? In that moment, does the child love the mom or does the child want the cookies? Do you love Jesus? Do you love the triune God or do you come to get what you believe you need? You see, in Mark, this is why the crowds come. This is their relationship with Jesus. And in John 2... It says that Jesus does not entrust himself to the crowds. Why? Because he knows what is in man. He knows their hearts. Jesus knows the crowds come for cookies, if you will. Indeed, they come in real distress. They come with real needs, but they don't often come because they really need or want Jesus, really want to have fellowship with him. So the question for you is why or how Do you come to Jesus? In order to have fellowship, to have communion with God, you must begin by recognizing and repenting of the ill motives you come to Jesus with, the selfish motives you come, the cookies you come for, if you will. Do you come because you're sick and you just want to be made well? Do you come because a family member is sick and you don't have anyone else to go to? You come hoping Jesus will do you a favor. Do you come because mom or dad or spouse are happy when you come? 
Do you come because you are terrified of hell, of being away from God, or at least being in punishment for that matter? I once knew a man on the verge of a divorce who came to Jesus in this broken and humbled estate. And I watched and I heard in amazement as he talked about all the things he was learning about Christ, all the ways that Christ was healing him in different past hurts of his life. When his marriage was made better, Jesus was yesterday's news. See, here's what is so humbling about what Jesus does in verses 29 through 34 as he seemed to do with the man I just mentioned. Jesus showed compassion. Jesus showed compassion. Come to him. Come to him with all of your ill motives. Come to him with all your selfish reasons. You can come seeking to please yourself. And Jesus is so kind that he will show compassion. He did it for an entire night. For his entire ministry, he showed compassion. But you must let all your sinful motives melt under the heat of his light and his love. You cannot let them remain. Name the reasons you come and still come. Name the reasons you come and repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. Not only as your healer, not only as your fix-it or band-aid for your problems, but instead as your hero, as your king. Come to him, believe in him, but do it because you want to know him. Let all your motives melt away so that you would want to know him, to enjoy and commune with the God who made you. Come and receive compassion and begin to repent. That's part of what he's preaching. Repent and believe in the king. Well, Jesus' commitment to preach the gospel flows uh, from his own communion with God. We see this primarily in verse 35. We're going to focus in on verse 35. Let me ask, what was God doing before he created the universe and everything in it? Author and professor Michael Reeve says that he was creating a special hell for people who asked such questions. Of course, he jokes on that and goes on to give a real answer. He points out that in John 17, 24, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says this, You loved me before the foundation of the world. Before creation, the Father was loving the Son. In John 14, 31, Jesus prays, or rather he's speaking to his disciples. He says, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Before creation, the Son, the eternal Son, was loving the Father Their love is displayed, it's shown, it's completed through the person of the Holy Spirit. We somewhat see this at the baptism. Jesus, or God, the Father's voice from heaven and the Spirit descending, approval, love upon the Son. But you see, even the Holy Spirit, uh, Romans 5.5 says, the Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our hearts, it says, into the hearts of those who want fellowship with God, who believe in Him. Okay, Pastor, Why are you explaining this? It's because if you don't understand that at the core of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is pure, perfect, self-giving love, then you will not understand what Jesus is doing here in verse 35. 
You see, Jesus sneaks out before dawn for prayer, not because it's just something the Son of God should do or is supposed to model for us. See, Jesus had quiet times, right? He had devotionals. You should too. Well, maybe, maybe that's an application. But Jesus is going out into the wilderness to be anything but alone. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is communing with God the Father, whom he has perfectly loved and been loved by since eternity past and will be for eternity future. Do you see how precious verse 35 is? Jesus is revealing how beautiful, attractive, and necessary communion with God is. Have you ever met someone and felt like you could just listen to them all day? You had endless questions for them and you generally just wanted to know them. Perhaps it was meeting with your favorite teacher or professor or speaker. Perhaps it was infatuation with that guy or girl who lived next door. It could be in listening to a grandparent tell you stories of young love, of fighting wars and making ends meet. It could be listening to your child or grandchild begin to tell you stories about their favorite things and honestly, they tell some of the best whoppers around and you just want to know and shower them with love. Have you ever felt that way, that desire about knowing God? Reflect on your religious life for a moment. Ask yourself, do I want to know to enjoy, to fellowship, to have friendship with God. In the Old Testament, the same King David who prays, you train my hands for war, my fingers for battle, also prays, my soul thirsts for you. My whole being longs for you. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says that all he once boasted in or lived for in the past, now he counts it as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Have you ever thought, I simply want God, nothing less, nothing more, just him? I think we struggle to want relationship with God because he is not a man like we are, right? We cannot reach out and touch him in the same way we can with each other. And perhaps the children can help me here. What is God? We've been doing the the kids' catechism, right, kids? Up here, look at me. What is God, right? God is a spirit, yes, and has what? No body. Again, one more time. What is God? God is a spirit and has no body, right? All the, all the children, candy, after the service, well done. Come up to me if your parents are all right with it. But in truth, we, we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with this reality. Jesus is not here in the flesh as we are. How do we relate to someone we cannot reach out and feel or see or have eternal knowledge of like Jesus does of the Father and the Son when he prays? Well, first, we need to believe it's possible to have such communion with God. And we must believe he's interested in hearing from us. We also then must begin to listen to what he tells us are the means by which we have communion with him. And not in the Lord's Supper sense, necessarily, with that use there. But what are those means? Well, he has given the Bible 
as his living responses to us. He gives us the preached word as Christ's voice to us, as he leads our worship. He gives us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're God's promises, his word made tangible for us. And he gives you the local church, where is the, where, which is the place where Jesus wraps his very arms around you. He weeps with you. He rejoices with you. That happens through the body of Christ. And prayer, prayer is not where God speaks to us. No, prayer is us speaking to God. Or as the psalmist in Psalm 62, 8 says, he, he says we pour out our hearts to him. This is the proof text for uh, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it talks about what prayer is. It's this offering up of our desires. It, it references this verse, pouring out our hearts to him. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. You must see that the fuel for Jesus' mission is communion with God and that, that that aim is to be your aim as well in life. You must also see that you are furnished then with everything you need to have sweet communion with God. Yes, God is a spirit and has no body, as the kids said, but in his Holy Spirit inside of you, in his word preached and read to you, in his sacraments and with his people and through prayer, talking to God, you have him. You have communion with him. He is listening for you to pour out your hearts before him. So what must you do? You must come to commune with the God who is love, pure, perfect, and blazingly beautiful love, and has invited you into that love to share in the communion that the Father has with the Son and the Son with the Father, and them too with the Spirit, the the community or communion rather they've had for eternity. While you may need to transform how you think of his word, his sacraments, and the church, I challenge you this week simply to pray out loud to God. Just one one thing to do. Pray out loud to God like you would to a person, right? Talk with him for a few minutes each day. And be honest. Don't come with what you think God wants to hear, but just come to commune with him this week. So if Jesus' mission is fueled by his own communion with God and and isn't first to be the healer or exorcist that the masses think he is, what is his mission then? Look again with me at verses 36 to 39. The crowds have come to Peter and Andrew's door and there's, there's no Jesus to be found, right? The few disciples begin to rush about searching for him and when they find him, they don't ask, what are you doing, Jesus? Or, or what's next, Jesus? But they say, Everyone is looking for you. Even the disciples seem to expect that the mission forward is through working wonders and growing Jesus' following. And Jesus implicitly answers, no. No. Verse 38, he says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Grasp these implications. Jesus didn't come to heal every sickness, to cast out every demon, to end slavery, or to take down every wicked ruler or set everything right. Yet. What does Jesus view as most important? Preaching the gospel. Confronting the world to make a decision about who he is. Why this mission? Well, it's because redemption of sinners hangs in the balance. 
bringing you into that spectacular communion with God that we just spoke of. Coming into that communion through faith in the gospel hangs in the balance. Jesus won't be revealed as a king in Mark until he is crowned, not with jewels, but with thorns on his head. When he'll be lifted high, but not on a throne, but in being nailed to a cross. He will be the kind of king, hero, that dies for your sins, that rises to make you righteous, ascends to heaven, and then baptizes the church with the Holy Spirit. But for now, in Mark, he simply must continue to preach, so that all, so that you may hear, repent, and believe, being brought into that communion with God. I think the difficult thing for us most days is that we just want comfort. We want ease. We want our knees and our backs not to hurt, our marriages to be peaceful, and our heads to never ache. We just want silence in the home, full stomachs at the table, and rest in our beds. And if we're honest, we're quite irritable when we don't have what we want. Seeing that Jesus is the one who will allow our lives to have sickness and depression does not mean he's compassionless. We've already addressed that in our first point. He has more compassion than anyone. But it does mean that his mission is not to pave the way for easy or comfortable living. Instead, it means that he leaves our afflictions, our diseases, difficulties, and demons because he is supremely more concerned about bringing us, you, into communion with God. You must see all troubles of this life as secondary to the mission that Jesus is accomplishing of redeeming you, of redeeming sinners that, uh, and bringing them to himself. Two applications, two quick applications. One, God allows or brings afflictions so that you would continue to come to him. Perhaps even, even coming with errant desires like the crowd does. Only so that those desires would change when you truly taste friendship with the Lord. That means that trials are not reasons to run, but reasons to come. So the Lord leaves them for the crowds and for you and me. And second, Jesus preached the gospel until he completed redemption. And then he equipped the church, Christians, churched folk, to continue to preach the gospel. You see, your sweet communion with God is meant to craft a heart in you, that you'd continue the preaching now, it's not just preaching as, as the pastor may do here, but it's going out in proclamation and declaration of what Jesus has done. So that when you would come to him, that you'd come to worship or study the word with others, that you wouldn't come alone. But you'd carry along your children as many as, as many of you have. That you'd bring along your neighbors, that you'd even beg your enemies to join with. Those prayers that you pray out loud this week, here's some content for you. Pray for a child or a family member first. Pray then for a neighbor, a classmate, or a coworker. And then be, be as compassionate as Jesus is to pray for your enemy. Pray for an enemy to come with. Well, we ask, what kind of hero, what kind of king is Jesus? And what is his mission? Well, it is to preach the gospel and so glorify God by you believing and being brought into relationship, communion with God, friendship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As that great hymn says, Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer.
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you were loving the Son in eternity past. The Son was loving the Father. The Spirit was displaying such perfect love and now revealing it to us, pouring it into our hearts as we believe upon you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Lord, I pray for us today. May we long for, seek after communion with God, with you, Lord, and that in coming, even with errant desires, may we yet come, and may they melt under your love and light, Lord. And we pray, Lord Jesus, God, as we come, may we never come alone. May the fuel of the communion we have with you drive us to bring others with us, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God and of the King. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.